Welcome to Psychology 205, Research Methods 1. My name is Dr. William Reagan, and tonight I'm going to provide a brief overview of Chapter 1, Introduction to the Scientific Method. Some of the learning objectives for this chapter are to explain what knowledge is and how it is obtained, to describe the current conception of science and describe its history, to understand the basic assumptions underlying scientific research, to describe the characteristics of scientific research and understand why each of these is necessary, to explain the difference between logic of discovery and logic of justification, to describe the characteristics that typify the person who is adept at pursuing scientific research, describe the objectives of scientific research, and to differentiate pseudoscience from scientific research. And indeed, uh, this chapter is an ambitious one where we will review uh, fact from fiction, among other things. Uh, during this chapter, you might ask yourself, why would anyone want to learn about the scientific research process? Well, there are a lot of answers. In today's society, uh, the, the process is, um, uh, because one wants to learn about it is one reason. Another is that it's, uh, it provides a foundation for other courses, and it can become... Uh, help an individual to become a critical consumer of information. For instance, uh, recognizing the difference between uh, the value of several different treatment types or options or uh, the risks of using um, certain medications. Uh, you could uh, learn more and be a better consumer um, of many products in our community um, by realizing how scientific research is conducted. Um, also, it can help you to develop critical and analytical thinking skills, which, again, could also be broadly applied. Uh, you could um, use what you learn from this coursework to uh, critically read research articles, and, of course, that will help you to matriculate towards uh, um, long-term goals of pursuing um, master's and, and doctorate degrees uh, and informing um, others some of the knowledge that you obtain in this course will be uh, required for um, certain graduate programs and um, I know many of my students end up uh, contacting me um, after they've taken courses and uh, request uh, letters of reference for graduate programs. Uh, so I'm well aware of the fact that uh, this type of knowledge that's acquired through research methods classes uh, can be useful later on. Now we'll talk a little bit about um, methods of acquiring knowledge. And uh, some of these methods are familiar with um, most people. And uh, the first one is, of course, intuition. Uh, it's defined usually as um, 
the idea of knowing without reasoning. Um, it, it has a place in uh, knowledge acquisition. It's often used in forming a hypothesis uh, or a, a hunch or an idea. Um, hypotheses are often based on um, casual observations, um, information passed from one person to another uh, without uh, <clears throat> necessarily a research basis behind it, which is one of the problems with uh, the method of um, intuition as a method of acquiring knowledge. The problem with it is that there's no mechanism for um, separating what is fact from what is fiction. And um, if you look at the use of intuition as a long-term approach to um, problem solving, what you'll find is that sometimes um, decisions are based on fictional beliefs and so they lead towards problems that can occur later on. Uh, and, and that idea is going to be um, re recurring. Another method of acquiring knowledge is um, when it comes from an authority. And that often occurs when facts are stated from a respected source. Uh, sometimes those could be um, teachers, politicians, celebrities, just to name a few. Sometimes that type of knowledge is used in the design phase of a study, and it can be used when interpreting data. But as with um, other types of methods of acquiring knowledge, there can be a problem with that because the authority themselves may be wrong, and um, of course that would make it difficult to prove um, that the outcome were factual if you didn't have um, the ability to prove that the authority themselves uh, were right. Uh, next, uh, the next method for acquiring knowledge is rationalism, and that is knowledge from reasoning. Uh, it's often used to derive hypotheses, which as I indicated earlier, uh, those are um, usually educated guesses. Uh, they're formed from ideas, but they have some factual basis behind them. There's usually some evidence of uh, truth that leads to a desire to test the hypothesis, which, uh, as we'll discuss throughout this course, later will become a theory. And... Uh, Rationalism is used to identify outcomes that would indicate the truth or falsity of the hypotheses. So, um, it's it, when we discuss rationalism, we're really getting to um, start to separate truth from fiction using scientific approaches. Um, but it, it is, again, from reason, so it's not it's not really fully vested in science yet, we'll, but we will get to that. Um, but first I want to talk about Rene Descartes, who was really one of the fundamental um, pioneers of rationalism, and 
Rene Descartes was around from 1596 to around 1650. Another problem with rationalism, or a potential problem anyway, is that uh, when it's relied solely on, uh, it can lead to two people reaching different conclusions. Again, because one person um, decides on one thing after thinking about it, and another person decides on yet another thing from thinking about it. Uh, so again, rationalism basically it's insufficient by itself, although it does have an important place in the acquisition of knowledge. Um, and finally, for the process of acquiring knowledge, we'll discuss empiricism. And that is knowledge from experience. Empiricism is um, a form of observation used to collect data in science. It um, empiricism will be uh, sort of the outcome as we get into the final weeks of this 16-week um, um, class. We will um, sort of move from uh, intuition to authority to discussion of rationalism where uh, we'll uh, discuss the reasoning uh, behind our ideas. And finally, we'll uh, look at collection of data and um, determining uh, fact from fiction um, that is accepted because it is reliable. Um, empiricism has roots back to John Locke uh, from the period of around 1632 to 1704. Um, John Locke discussed the idea of tabula rasa which is the um, blank state of the mind. It's something that we will discuss a little bit throughout the class. And uh, also David Hume had a piece in empiricism. And David Hume was around from uh, around 1711 to 1776. Um, for those of you who are tuned into this podcast, if you submit to me by email a uh, brief um, biography of David Hume just in one or two paragraphs, you will receive extra credit for that. That will be applied to your final grade for the first uh, class, uh, Psychology 205. So again, just a brief um, paragraph or two, biography of David Hume, and submitted to me by email, and you will receive extra credit. If you contact me and ask me for details, I'll be happy to provide them. But uh, there's one extra credit opportunity for you. Um, and moving back towards uh, the discussion of empiricism, uh, one problem with uh, empiricism is that it's uh, so always subject to researcher bias. And one problem um, that can result from when a researcher examines something that they're especially interested in is that their own beliefs can take over the um, the facts of the research, which skews the outcome somewhat. So uh, throughout the period, the term, I will advise you over and over again to use caution um, with your own observations. Be sure that if you're studying something, you um, invite others to observe as well, and. Um, Always be cautious to try to be unbiased with your work.
Um, and for empiricism to really be effective, it has to be conducted under controlled conditions, uh, sometimes called laboratory conditions. And we'll discuss that throughout the term, how um, when research is conducted, it can be um, done in a setting where it can be repeated over and over again. And of course, that's the, the very best way to do, um, to conduct the research that we'll be discussing more throughout the term, uh, when it can be observed over and over again, where others can attempt to um, implement similar experiments so that the results can be compared. And um, finally, uh, systematic strategies must be used to reduce researcher bias and maximize objectivity. Um, and while it's, it's sometimes tough to describe in full, I'll, I'll at least uh, start to discuss here that when um, you're designing a research uh, protocol, it's important that other people can use the exact same technique so that they can observe the results, which presumably will be the same as the results that you're able to see, uh, notwithstanding variables that are beyond your control. Uh, seeing the variation between uh, one person's um, experiment and another person's experiment of the exact same um, concept can be especially rewarding and uh, sort of epitomizes um, empiricism, that knowledge from experience of observation um, of collected data. So um, I'll be sure to discuss this further, not only in class, but throughout the term, so that it is easy for you to understand. Science is uh, designed to systematically produce re reliable and valid knowledge about the natural world. It comes from the Latin verb uh, sire, which means to know. And the English term was coined in the 19th century by William Wewell. And uh, Wewell was around from around 1794 to around 1866. Um, throughout history, a variety of scientific methods have been uh, popular. Uh, for instance, one is the uh, process called induction, and that um, occurs when there is a specific event that's observed which leads to general reasoning. Aristotle, who was around um, approximately 384 BC to 322 BC, uh, was especially um, related to the method of induction as a form of scientific method. Induction is still used today when generalizing from specific experiments to general hypotheses or theories. For instance, in my own work, I've studied occupational stress in professional pilots, and I concluded that um, the work environment was more stressful for younger pilots than it was for older ones, possibly because of the uh, well-developed coping skills or uh, wealth of experience or um, monetary assets that they'd accrued that helped to make their lives more secure. 
Um, but nonetheless, the fact that I'd studied pilots, at one point, uh, one would wonder, well, would the findings about pilots at their jobs be um, generalizable to workers in other fields, like, for instance, construction workers or college professors or uh, grocery store managers, for instance. And um, it's usually done with caution. When you generalize from a specific finding to a general finding, it has to be done cautiously because, of course, there are a lot of different variables that occur between, for instance, different jobs. And um, in, in 1981, uh, Lantain observed people do not exert as much effort in a group as they do working alone. And uh, they infer that that represents the more general construct of social loafing. So that's another example is uh, Lantain's finding. Um, but researchers often do rely on a sample to represent a population. And um, that's something that we'll discuss a little bit more in, in class, just how uh, one group of observations can sometimes lead us to believe that something overall is in fact true or for that matter false. All right. Um, another form is deduction and that's when a general uh, finding then leads us to a specific form of reasoning. Um, it involves the forming of a hypothesis from a theory and uh, Oftentimes, those theories can really guide our knowledge, and um, sometimes we do that from a general sense to a more specific one. Another form of scientific method is hypothesis testing. We'll focus a lot on hypothesis testing this term and next term. Hypothesis testing generally is the process of formulating a hypothesis to explain some phenomenon that has been observed and then comparing the hypothesis with the facts. The process of hypothesis testing was prominent from the mid-19th century all the way until about 1960 and it is still used extensively today. <clears throat> um, hypothesis testing is often associated with logical positivists that was a philosophical position started by scholars at University of Vienna, uh, where they believed that um, statements were meaningful only when verifiable by observation. It's an interesting process, uh, I'll have to say, that um, when you see an experiment and get a chance to act it out um, and, and observe it several times, then you'll maybe perhaps better understand the... Um, the mentality that goes with that logical positivism. Um, but there are some criticisms of hypothesis testing, just like with the other methods. Um, there's uh, the um, idea that, of course, the um, information can be um, biased or uh, even incorrectly entered by the scientists. So, you know, the a lot of cautions have to go for um, making mistakes in that area. Um, and naturalism is uh, uh, another approach, and um, 
it is where science should be studied and evaluated empirically. Uh, it rejects foundation, the foundational epistemology, and um, the idea of naturalism is that we should continue evalu continually evaluate our theories based on empirical adequacy. And um, that's a good idea in general because, of course, a theory, even though it's a proven um, idea, closest thing to fact that we have, in fact, is, is theory, um, but it could change uh, because of a variety of circumstances. And um, Thomas Kuhn, uh, from 1922 to about 1960, uh, 1996, was influential in naturalism and uh, discussed it as a paradigm, a framework, thought, or belief um, by which you interpret reality, and stated that science governed by, uh, was governed by types of activities, for instance, the normal science shared paradigm, and uh, revolutionary science, which replaced one paradigm with another. And, of course, um, Paul Feyerabend from 1924 to 1994 uh, had the anarchist theory of science where it was argued that there is no such thing as a method of science, but uh, of course science has many methods. And uh, Feyerabend advocated that science does not give knowledge superior to other forms of knowledge. His position was that the unchanged principle of scientific method is that anything goes and that scientific knowledge is not better than other forms of knowledge. So now we'll kind of go over the idea of what is science. And um, I'll challenge you in class to try to describe to me uh, and to the other class, um, the, to the members of the class, just what, what is science. Um, I'll define it here as uh, multiple methods and practices that are used to develop uh, secure scientific knowledge. In order to succeed, scientists must be skeptical, creative, and systematic. They have to identify problems. They have to question current solutions that are not working. They have to creatively and systematically come up with new solutions. And scientists have to subject their new solutions to empirical testing. To be successful, science must conduct research ethically, critically self-examine its practices to determine what is working and what is not, and engage in ongoing learning and improvement. There are some basic assumptions underlying scientific research. Those include that it should be uh, uniform or um, regular in nature. There should be the uh, process of determinism, which is the belief that mental processes are fully caused by uh, prior natural factors and probabilistic causes, which is a weaker form of determinism that indicates regularities that usually but not always occur. Um, another assumption 
basic to scientific research is that it's reality in nature. Um, and that's the assumption that the things we see, hear, feel, smell, and taste are real. There's a process of discoverability involved as well. That's the assumption that it is possible to discover the regularities that exist in nature, although that test might not be simple. And there are two components to discoverability. That's discovering the pieces of the puzzle and putting them together. Um, there are characteristics of scientific research, including uh, control, that's holding constant or eliminating the influence of extraneous variables, which allows for the unambiguous claims about cause and effect, and uh, also the placebo effect, which uh, sometimes there's an improvement due to participants' expectations for improvement rather than the actual treatment. Uh, there is operationalism, uh, which represents constructs by a specific set of operations. And uh, the operational definition, which is defining a concept by the operations used to represent or measure it. There are objections to operational definition. Uh, the demands are too strict. A uh, single operational definition could not completely specify the meaning of a term. Uh, for example, aggression, the honking of horns, hitting a bobo doll, delivering electric shocks to another, and uh, the force with which a pad is hit. And, of course, then there's multiple operationism and uh, replication um, as an aspect of the um, uh, characteristics of scientific research. So... Um, Reproduction, reproduction of results results in a new study according to replication and there are reasons for failure to replicate and that's because an effect doesn't exist uh, or because the replication study is not an exact replication or because um, the effect may depend on context. Uh, of course then a meta-analysis that's a quantitative technique for describing the relationship between variables across multiple studies. Um, which is yet another approach that we'll be discussing uh, throughout the term. Um, you may wonder about the role of theory in science, and as I've already explained to you, um, theory really is, uh, you know, as close to fact as we have in science. Uh, it's more believable and trustworthy than a hypothesis, and certainly more so than uh, a mere idea. So a theory is used to summarize and integrate existing data. It guides new research. Uh, it provides continuous interaction between theory and empirical observation, which is related to uh, logic or context of discovery, and that is the inductive part of science that we talked about a little bit a while ago, and um, the logic or context of justification which is the deductive part of science. Uh, and so now you may wonder, what is the role of the scientist in psychological research? Well, uh, this is one of my favorite um, 
parts of of this process and of course that's the curiosity the uh, the goal is the pursuit of knowledge and the uncovering of regularities in nature um, of course patience which some people may be better at than others uh, that might make a good research topic um, the patience part that's gaining knowledge from uh, nature by by way of the understanding it could be a slow and tedious process um, and then of course objectivity that's the scientists personal wishes and attitudes uh, should not affect his or her observations and uh, change that's devising new methods and techniques for investigating nature by now you might be asking yourself what are some of the objectives of psychological research um, well one objective is just a mere description of what's being studied that helps to uh, portray a certain phenomenon accurately uh, it focuses on characteristics and degree to which they exist um, another objective of the research is an explanation that's to identify the cause of the phenomenon and one that interests a lot of people is prediction uh, it helps uh, psychological research helps to anticipate the outcome of the occurrence of an event uh, it can also identify risk factors of a phenomenon which can help predict when it might happen and yet another um, objective of psychological research is control and that is uh, the manipulation of conditions that determine a certain phenomenon and um, there are different meanings of the word control for instance controlling antecedents to produce a desired outcome and also eliminating the influence of extraneous variables later on in the term I'll explain to you um, how the error term is the sum of all variables that can influence a particular problem and uh, that's uh, when we talk about control and um, eliminating those the influence of those variables it's uh, isolating the the aspect of the problem that we want to study can be very important and a big decision in the research design process and I'll, I'll explain that a little further later on and um, in conclusion uh, science differs from pseudoscience and uh, pseudoscience is a lot more close uh, closer to fiction than science is which is science of course is a lot closer to fact um, so in pseudoscience it's uh, often an approach that claims to be scientific but in fact violates many of the fundamental beliefs of science uh, there's often an attempted association with science which um, is made in an attempt to gain legitimacy uh, for instance um, you know sometimes products are they claim to be proven but in fact they're not um, there are some strategies used in pseudoscience such as uh, creating new hypotheses in order to explain away negative findings and that can be characterized by statements that can't be falsified um, 
and the exclusive use of confirmation and reinterpretation of negative findings as supporting the claim. Uh, for instance, science tries to prove the hypotheses wrong. Um, there's a usually in pseudoscience there's an absence of self-correction through continuous and rigorous testing of the claim, uh, where one doesn't try to verify or refute the claims, and will want to uh, be cautious of that as as we progress forward. Um, there's also a reversed burden of proof where critics prove their client claims are wrong and uh, over reliance on testimonials and anecdotal evidence so supporting a claim um, there's also often an absence of any connection to other disciplines that study issues related to the claim and that concludes this uh, brief podcast uh, discussion of chapter one introduction to scientific method uh, and I appreciate your interest in the topic. Please um, bring your questions to class, and um, thank you again for your interest and participation.